Hi, I'm Channing. And I'm Elise. And this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand that scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain really compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. Hi friends, welcome back. We're here for the dates May 22nd to May 28th, covering lots of different chapters. The Come Follow Me manual assigns Joseph Smith Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Mark chapters 12 and 13, and Luke 21. There are some really great stories going on here, and so we're kind of spending a little time in each different section or each different chapter. We're going to cover things like the doomsday language that's used to talk about the second coming, The parable of the ten virgins, or as we like to call them, the parable of the ten bridesmaids. And we'll finish up the episode by thinking about the widow's might and the parable of the talents. Yeah, so we're just going to dive straight in. And we're going to start by talking about those themes of doomsday and destruction and all all of that language and rhetoric that shows up in the text this week. Because a lot of these chapters really begin to look forward to, not in like a great time, but like anticipate Jesus's death and the destruction and the destruction that comes with the second coming. And so there's this heightened emphasis on alertness, urgency, and readiness in the text. For example, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 44, the text says things like, quote, watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Therefore, be also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of. End quote. We also read in Mark chapter 13, verses 33 through 37, things like, quote, Watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, end quote. So on one hand, these verses really read kind of like a jumpy Jesus thriller film, as if he's going to kind of jump out from around the corner or show up in our rooms in the middle of the night and startle us awake. But on the other hand, these verses can also read as a high expectation to be constantly watchful and vigilant so that we are prepared no matter what time Jesus arrives. So let's look a little bit more closely at these two scenarios. Yeah, so let's start first. If we take these verses to mean that God could be anywhere, I think what actually makes the idea less terrifying than the jumpy Jesus th- thriller film. I love that. <laughs> are the verses that show up in Matthew chapters 25 through, are the verses in Matthew chapter 25 verses 35 through 40 where Jesus says, "I was unhungered and you gave me meat." 
I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. And then when the disciples respond, What are you talking about, Jesus? We never saw you hungry or thirsty or in prison. Jesus responds, Inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And to me, like to Elise, this is the crux of the gospel. This is the most important piece of all of it in my experience and in my opinion. Because God is teaching us this kind of omni-nameability of God. Which means that as philosopher Richard Kearney writes, this is to say that every name is now eligible for God. This passage reminds us that the omni-nameability of God is also a radical translatability of every name, person, and presence of the divine into every living human being. The divine is in each human other who asks to be received into our midst. And of course, this can't take place without the creative possibility of imagining others as such. Kearney critiques the disciples' lack of imagination, which we can easily understand as our own lack of imagination, that inhibits us from recognizing divinity in the stranger. Kearney writes, quote, For they had not recognized the divine embodied in the alien before them. They were looking up, not down, obsessed by some fantasy in the skies, rather than heeding a flesh and blood presence here on earth, end quote. Like the disciples, how often do we turn away from the other while professing that we know God, as opposed to learning and recognizing the divinity of the stranger? In these verses, I think we're called to participate in the endless play of love of the stranger becoming love of God and love of God as love of the stranger. The divine doesn't only lie in those whom we already love or like. It lies most powerfully in those we consider stranger and other. In this way, too, the division between mortals and God collapses. Every human and other than human being literally is God. If it has not yet already, this should like radically change your life. I don't know how else to say it. I hope that hopefully you can understand the kind of passion with which I'm speaking, because I think this verse is is absolutely wonderful. And I think it helps us embody that first greatest commandment to love God, but also love your neighbor as thyself. Yeah. And I mean, this is not a new concept by any stretch of the imagination for people who have been listening to our podcast for a long time. Because from like day one, so many things have changed on this podcast. We have changed on this Mm -hmm. podcast. But that um, orientation toward the recognition of divinity in the other has been a constant through thread throughout this whole entire journey for us. And um, yeah, I just... I'm so I'm like thrilled. This is one thing where I'm like, I'm so glad we got to have the New Testament very last <laughs> yeah. because here it is like the final like jewel in the crown of like, this is what we've been saying the whole time. And like, it's so beautiful to see it just play out here now in the text. It's like, we made it. We finally got yes. here. <laughs> it's all coming together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so just kind of following, following along with that, talking about this concept of God could be anywhere at any time. We also understand that this anytime arrival of God invokes high expectations of constant watchfulness and impeccable diligence so that we're prepared no matter what time God arrives. This theme shows up ironically in the parable of the 10 bridesmaids. Like, yes, sure, we could call them virgins, but we're not giant fans of labeling these women by their sexual status, so we are going to call them bridesmaids. 
traditionally, this story reads a really pitiful and like, oh, too bad, so sad kind of story. It's often rehearsed in Sunday school as like, wow, those foolish five women didn't heed the call, so now they can't make it to their so now they can't make it to the wedding due to their own personal failings. We all need to be like the five other women in the story who were prepared and ready for the groom. And if this is the reading that resonates with you, amazing. But for us, recently, Elise especially has really been loving Nadia Bowles Weaver's interpretation of this story, where she doesn't punish or laugh at the supposed foolishness of the five bridesmaids for not bringing extra oil or because they fell asleep. Instead, she writes, quote, I think they were foolish for listening to the other bridesmaids tell them what to do, and they were certainly foolish for doing it. And I think they were foolish in the exact same way that we are foolish, end quote. From here, she goes on to remark how foolish we are when we listen to voices other than God's, and how foolish it is to think that we can only approach God if we have already met all of our own needs first. Nadia Boltzweaver concludes by writing, quote, So, my sweet friends, all that is to say, the kingdom of God is not like an existential anxiety dream. You don't have to show up with everything you need. The light of Christ is bright enough, and it always has been. End quote. And we really appreciate this interpretation because it softens some of the anxiety and urgency that often comes with the story of the ten bridesmaids. And so with all of this, perhaps it's less about, oh, could God be anywhere and what time will God arrive? And maybe it's more about believing in the reality that God is everywhere. And although, of course, we need to be watchful, we can also trust that God has enough oil for all of us. And like separating not just God's responsibility, but as part of the wedding crew in this story, which is like the entire population of humanity, I'm sure there's a way for us to figure out how all of our lamps can be lit and that everyone can make it to the wedding. Like there's enough for all of us if we share. And I think this showed up really nicely earlier this year when we were thinking about the story of the loaves and the fishes. Like we can learn from that. We can learn how to be good wedding guests by helping our friends prepare and sharing our oil with them. We love this interpretation of the story of the 10 bridesmaids, but we're ready to kind of turn to another iconic story and another personal scriptural hero that we encounter in the text, and that is the widow with two mites. The story of the widow's mites is found in Mark chapter 12. This story opens with Jesus telling his disciples to watch what happens at the treasury. Many scribes place large sums of money in the treasury, and then along comes a poor widow to put her humble contribution into the treasury. Mark chapter 12, verses 43 and 44 read, And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in, for all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had even all of her living. Now, in the LDS Church, there is heavy emphasis on this story as an example of a faithful tithe on the part of the widow. This woman is held up as the epitome of faithfulness, giving all that she had, which was admittedly very little, to the church. The Come, Follow Me manual encourages study of the story in the context by asking readers things like, what do these verses teach about how the Savior views our offerings? 
Show your family how to pay tithing and fast offerings to the Lord. How do these offerings help build God's kingdom? What are some other ways we can, quote, offer all that we have to the Lord, end quote? Perhaps on the podcast, we can try and answer some of those questions today. Yeah. As I was uh, reading this story and researching and trying to figure out what uh, we wanted to share, I came across an article written by Jim Friedrich, who is an Episcopal priest who shares another perspective of this familiar story. Friedrich points out that in the Episcopalian tradition, this story is also commonly spoken about in regards to tithes. Similar focus is paid on the comparison of the scribe's donation, which were a large sum, but actually were a small portion of their wealth, comparing that, comparing them to that of the widows, which was a tiny sum, but relative to her wealth was, quote, all that she had. Of this, Friedrich writes, quote, countless preachers have asked, are we going to be stingy like the scribes or generous like the widow? That's a very good question and well worth considering. But many biblical scholars tell us that that is not the question Jesus is asking in this particular story, end quote. So what is the question that Jesus is maybe asking when he asks his disciples to pay attention to what unfolds on the treasury? Friedrich offers us a more detailed historical perspective on the meaning of the treasury of the temple. Friedrich illustrates that rather than the temple being merely a place of worship, as we may picture or understand our modern LDS temples and meeting houses to be like, the temple also functioned as a marketplace and not one that was f- and not one that was fair or just. Friedrich describes it as quote, an exploitative economic system which foster which fostered and exacerbated the extreme economic inequality of first century Palestine. The money collected into its treasury did not go to things like pastoral care or outreach. It funded a bureaucracy of sacrifice which benefited the few while sucking up the meager portions of the many. As Jesus puts it so succinctly, the rich, quote, devour widows' houses, end quote. When we look at this story again through a different lens, we can see that funding a system that benefits the rich at the expense of the poor doesn't actually make the situation any better for the people suffering most in it. This would not have been lost on Jesus who was an experienced critic of the systemic injustice of his time. Friedrich then turns our attention to the widow to take a look at her more closely. Friedrich writes, quote, Look, Jesus says, look at that woman. See her situation. See who she is. Don't just see what she's doing. See what is being done to her. She is being exploited by the injustice of an economy which takes everything from her and gives nothing back. But do you notice how, instead of acting like a helpless victim... She is taking as much charge over her situation as she can. Though the system is corrupt, she will not be deterred from the devotional practice of making a sacrificial offering to God. She has the heart of a giver, and she will not let that be taken from her, nor will she live in fear. Even though she has little and is living on the edge of survival, she refuses to to act out of a grasping sense of scarcity. She trusts instead that the Lord will provide. And perhaps she is even having some fun at the expense of the preening scribes, making an an ironic contrast between their stinginess and the breathtaking costliness of her two little mites. The text doesn't say any of this, but when Jesus tells me to look at the widow, that's what I see. Jesus doesn't end with go and do likewise, the way he usually does when he's urging exemplary behavior. No, 
this is a justice story, end quote. That's such a good passage. I know. I love that. And in the same way, I really want to examine tithing a little bit as it functions in the church of my childhood. I remember like going to Deseret Book and buying one of those like cute little tin boxes for tithing that you could like, you know, it had like three different sections. Like you can put in money for spending, money for saving, and money for tithing. And it was like this cute little thing that I had sitting on my dresser. And I would literally save my like actual pennies to then proudly turn into the bishop on Sunday morning. And I remember as a child putting those pennies in an envelope and imagining what they would magically turn into. Would my tithing turn into one stone on a white temple wall? Would it be the floral fabric on a meeting house soft chair? Would it pay for a page in a hymn book? Would it be a part of those pretty flowers in the backdrop of general conference? And then as I got older and my donations became larger, I wondered if my tithing was turning into cans of food at the bishop's storehouse, feeding a hungry family in my city. Could my meager fast offerings, paid with my babysitting money, really provide for someone in need? I was assured that they could. I also remember when my husband was in graduate school and we were living off food stamps, WIC, and student loans, and sitting in Relief Society meetings where people argued over whether or not tithing should be paid on loan money. And I remember writing a tithing check or two or three or more with student loan money, remembering the story of the widow's mites and feeling a real kinship with her. And for those of us who have kept up with the news recently on the church's fraudulent attempts at tax evasion and their subsequent SEC settlement for $5 million, I think you'll understand when I say that my story and the hundreds of thousands more just like it is a little bit of a tragedy. Because there's no real transparency about how the church uses tithing funds, it's difficult to say exactly where my tithing money went. Maybe it did pay for hymn books and temple stones. I really hope, like honestly, against all hope, that my tithing money turned into cans of potato pearls. Like those, (laughs) those are the best things. And I'm so glad, like I'm so mad that they discontinued them. And I just like hope that that's what my tithing money paid for. I would actually feel proud of it if it did. (laughs) But it also just as likely funded anti-LGBTQ plus efforts. That money also just as likely paid a portion of settlements made in cases of sexual assault and clergy abuse brought against the church. It also just as likely sat in a bank account accruing interest for the end of times. And for every privileged white girl sad story like mine, there are many, many more of those who truly did or continue to give, quote, all that they have to the church. All for it to line the pockets of an institution valued in excess of 100 billion with a B dollars. There's a part of me that wishes I could go back and tell my younger self to keep the money that I squirreled away in those envelopes. I wish I would have spent it instead on a bag of hot fries at the recess snack shop for my friend who always seemed to forget her lunch. I wish I would have spent it on a bottle of hot pink nail polish and some nail polish remover for the boy that I used to babysit who always wanted me to paint his nails but then take it off again before his parents got home. I wish I would have spent it on buying meals for friends who recently brought babies home, or flowers for a friend who lost her dad. Now I think of all the rainbow flags that that money could have purchased, all the donations it could have been made, all the donations it could have made to restoring ancestral winds to help find and fight for justice for missing and murdered indigenous women. I think of all of the water shares that money could have purchased for Great Salt Lake, and I get so angry. 
haven't paid my tithing in seven years, not to the church anyway, because at some point I realized that funding an institution which continuously implements misogynistic policies was a choice to fund sexism. I realized that donating to a church which manipulates the lack of required transparency to line its own pockets and funnel money into causes in countries that target queer and trans folks under the guise of protecting the family, and whose representatives spout anti-queer and anti-trans hatred over every pulpit they are invited to, was a choice to fund violence. I realized that my widow's mites, small as they were, enabled an institution to continue to ignore the hundreds of years of intergenerational trauma inflicted on indigenous peoples globally. It was, and it still is, uncomfortable to know that I financially contributed to violence against women, trans and queer folks, and black and indigenous folks through my tithing. I wish I could have taken it all back. But the story of the widow's mites is also a comfort to me in these times too. Because like Friedrich says, she didn't give for the sake of the institution. She gave for herself, because giving was in her nature, because helping was in her nature, because she valued faithful contribution. Her two cents were a double-edged sword. She knew what little value she held in the eyes of that community, and she chose to value herself anyway. And in so doing, she called out, whether it was intentional or not, the pitiful, awful, sinful neglect of the most marginalized members of society. She was clever, this woman. I really admire her. And I'm so glad that this story was recorded, whether it's factually true or not. And I like to think that Jesus really admired her too, and hopefully asked her to join his posse of certain women after such a show of bravery and strength. So as we consider her story this week, there are some questions that we might consider asking ourselves. Is my gift serving an institution that may use my donations for harm? Is my gift truly going towards serving the most marginalized members of my community? Are there ways I can contribute to my community in direct, meaningful ways instead, such as mutual aid funds? Is my gift offered in the spirit of care and communal contribution? And finally, does my gift honor both myself and those intended to receive it? This is not the only story that appears this week that has to do with, like, money or mites or talents. I don't really understand all of these different terms for the different types of money, but I recognize that they are all some form of coinage in my mind. And so this brings us to our next and final story, the parable of the talents. This story shows up in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. In this story, a rich man delegates the management of his wealth to his servants. He gives five talents to the first servant, two talents to the second, and one talent to the third. Two of the servants increase their talents by trading and maximizing, but the third servant hides the money in the ground and earns nothing more. When the rich man returns, he rewards the two who made money, but severely punishes the servant who did nothing. Now, this is a tricky parable to me, but I wonder if we could approach the story as a story about privilege, maybe. Which is also which is also to say, what are we doing with the privileges that we have been given or allotted? As a cis white woman with two household incomes and no children, what am I doing with the privilege I have been given? In what ways am I going out and spending my privilege for the maximum good? But here's where this connection differs from the parable, though. I don't believe our role is to use our privilege for personal gain or to increase our personal individual spending power, security, or position. 
And so instead, I think the story of Zacchaeus from from last week really reminds us that as we spend our privilege or share our privilege, we're required to do so with the needs of the most marginalized groups in mind and then distribute those talents. Of course, this approach to the story isn't totally perfect because in the story, harsh punishment is heaped on those who have the least amount of privilege and choose to keep it for themselves. Instead of this, we think that a more personalized reading might function better here. What if in the story, me or you or Elise are neither the first or second servant who did all of the great things? What if, as is probably true, we're more likely the third servant who did nothing with what we had been given because we were too afraid? In the story, the third servant explains his actions of hiding his talent because he knew the rich man was, quote, a hard man, and I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth, end quote. In our own lives, what fears do we have about authority, punishment, or perception that keep us from acknowledging our privilege and spending or maximizing it for the good of others? Why are we afraid of making mistakes or doing things wrong because of how we think people will respond to us? Why does it often seem safer and easier to focus only on the oppression we may experience while simultaneously hiding away from the privilege we have as white cis women? With these things in mind, we hope we can understand this story as a personal call to courage and spending our privilege without fear of making mistakes. We will make mistakes, but we also have a responsibility to do something with what we've been given. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we're grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you showed your support by sharing the podcast, leaving us a loving rating on iTunes, or connect with us on Instagram as the Faithful Feminists. We're deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so, so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends! Bye, friends!